Before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, um, I was blessed by the study of this psalm and I wanted to share it with you and I didn't realize it was Communion Sunday when I was putting it together and I just see how the Lord works. It's, it's precious how he's put these things together. Psalm 32 is what they call a masculine psalm. There's 16 of them in the book of Psalms. Psalms means song. It's a list of songs. These were to be sung. They're poetic. Uh, they're part of the poetic writings in the Old Testament. This is a, a song of David. He wrote it, King David. That's called a masculine. Masculine means a song of instruction, meaning you're to learn from it. And of all the Psalms, there's six of them that are uh, what they call the blessed Psalms. It begins with the word blessed. And the word blessed translated clearly means, oh, how happy. And it's, it's instruction on how to be happy. We find the very first blessed psalm is Psalm 1. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and upon that law he meditates day and night. And that's a picture of how to be happy. Well, this psalm, Psalm 32, is another picture of how to be happy. But it was written in a very, very critical time in David's life, one of the most miserable times in David's life. We know King David clearly for two events in his life. One was the killing of Goliath, and the other was his sin with Bathsheba. And uh, the singing of this psalm is a confession of his sin. And it was sung by everybody. It was on Israeli hit radio, and everybody sang it. And it would be sung in the temple. And it was David publicly confessing his sin before all of Israel. Uh, Dr. Alan Redpath used to say that the circle of sin is the circle of repentance. So if it's a secret sin between you and God, and God has chosen not to reveal it beyond that, it's a secret repentance between you and the Lord. If it's a private sin uh, between you and a handful of others you've offended, it's a private confession. If it's a public sin, it's a public confession. And this, for David, was a public sin, thus requiring a public confession. He could have hidden it, but he saw the need not to do that, and he wanted to be set free. And this is a picture on how to be happy. And today I pray that the word of God ministers to you because it is living and it is breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. And God is here today through the power of his Holy Spirit to touch you through this this word. And as it ministered to David thousands of years ago and has been ministering to saints for thousands of years, today I know, as I saw in first service, it will minister to you. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Psalm 32. Blessed, oh how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit or guile. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Selah means think on this. This is where John Ming, Pastor John, would be playing just a quiet instrumental, and you would meditate on the words of the song. Think on this, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. In a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Isn't that precious? Lord, thank you for your word. Just the reading of it calms and quiets our soul and comforts us in the depths of of our heartache. I pray, Lord and Holy Spirit, that you would minister to us today. Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. We thank you for the ministry in which you're accomplishing this day, and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. As I said earlier, this is a psalm of instruction, a masculine, and it's, it's to teach us something. It's to teach us how to be happy. And today I pray that you really would take it to heart because there's, there's a precious gift God has waiting for you. And in this day and age, it's so very necessary. It's this idea of forgiveness. And it's one of those things that we oftentimes don't seem to understand completely. And also, this idea of confession of sin. And we'll cover the psalm in just a moment, but I... I want to open with a story that I've read many times in many different publications, and I love this story. And uh, it'll it'll set it'll kind of set the scene for us as we study through this psalm. A little boy had been given a slingshot for his birthday, and he loved it, and practiced every day aiming at different objects. During the summer, he and his sister would spend a lot of time at their grandmother's house. And one day, he was out in the backyard and he spied his grandma's pet duck. I know it's awful. On impulse, he took out his slingshot, took aim, and hit the duck with a stone. The duck died. He killed it. Can you get past that? Okay. Hang in there. Then he panicked. What was he to do? This was grandma's pet duck. She'd hate him forever for killing her pet. So he hid the bird in the woodpile, and when he looked up, there was his sister. She'd seen what he'd done. After lunch that day, Grandma told Sally to help with the dishes, and Sally said, Johnny told me he wanted help to help you in the kitchen today. Didn't you, Johnny? And then she leaned over and whispered in his ear, remember the duck. So Johnny did the dishes. What choice did he have? For the next several weeks, Johnny did a lot of dishes, and every once in a while, when he'd be tempted to object, his sister would whisper to him, remember the duck. And I think about that, and that's awful. Because that's us. The Bible says in Revelation 12.10 that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He reminds us of every failure we've ever done. And it's a loop we're all familiar with. And and we we run through life and our busyness trying to stay ahead of the accuser. It doesn't take long for us to be taken back in time. Michelle and I yesterday uh, drove to San Diego for a high school friend's wedding. Um, and I'd actually known him since the second grade, and, and he uh, was Navy SEAL. He still is involved with um, national security. And uh, his first wife had led him to the Lord, and she died of brain cancer, and he was remarrying, and we went for the wedding. Well, these are my high school friends, many I hadn't seen since high school. And uh, it, it, was, it was challenging. And, and you arrive, and it takes you right back to 18 years of age. And you're reminded of stories you'd forgotten or tried to put in the back of your memory never to be remembered, and they somehow creep up and you realize what an idiot you were and, and how you hurt people. And you start to see people that you'd never reconciled with. And, and you're, you're, you're at a wedding where it's a limited environment and you're somehow avoiding them. And they're looking at you and you're looking at them and you've got to bridge that gap and you've got to go in and connect. And there's that tension 
And the conversations, and as Michelle was there, some of the folks she'd never met before, hearing stories of my youth, like, you know, okay. <laughs> but this is our life. And we have many regrets, don't we? And some of you say, I don't have any regrets. Well, you're on good medication. <laughs> and that prescription will run out. <laughs> we all have guilt. We all have guilt. And then we hear that repeating voice, whether it's the voice of our, our past parents or current parents or friends, enemies, opponents, workmates. We hear it. And we're reminded of our failures and our shortcomings. And, and even at this wedding, we saw uh, on, on my friend's, on his, his new wife's side of the family, we saw uh, an eclectic gathering between the father and the siblings and, and opposing ideologies and each speech that was made was opposite of the one that was made. And you saw the tension and you saw how it had manifested itself down the generations and you're just sitting back just taking it all in and thinking, something went wrong here. Something went wrong here and no one ever reconciled or fixed it. And everyone's living with tension in that place. And and here this guilt is manifesting itself and affecting generations. And and a lot of you carry this and, and, and it's it's come down from your grandparents, probably. And you're struggling and we feel guilty. And I and I find times where you're you're in the shower, and that's a place where I, I meditate and I, I ruminate. And, and Michelle will come and she'll hear me moaning. She goes, you okay? And it's just reflecting on something as I'm processing the day or my past or anything. And she goes, what would you say? I go, no, nothing. You don't want to know. And, and, and this is, this, you're driving in a car. You'll, it just flooded back in. You're like. And that's our life. That's our life. And we feel guilt and shame. Right? And somewhere along the line, we hear that voice, you killed the duck, right? Don't forget the duck. And I hear it. I hear it time and time again. And that's the accuser of the brethren, Satan. He accuses us. He has no problem making us feel guilty. You know why? Because we are. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. The Bible says if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. There's nobody perfect in this room. None. You say, well, we need self-esteem. We don't need a message on guilt and sin and condemnation. I, I get it, but we still have it. Now, how are you processing it? By just pretending it's not there? That's, that's, just, that's, that's dumber than anything I could think of. Why don't you face it head on and process it? It's there. It's like whistling by a graveyard. You're, you're, you know, C.S. Lewis said, war and pestilence doesn't increase the death rate. It's 100% in every generation. You're whistling by the graveyard, but you're going to end up there. And, and it's appointed once for a man to die, then judgment will stand before God. And there is right, and there is wrong. And we have succeeded, and we have failed. And we have guilt, and we have shame. And that is humanity. We're twisted, we're broken, we're selfish. And somewhere along the line, we have to come face to face with that. And how do we process it? Billy Graham once noted, everywhere he went, he saw a universal sense of guilt. It's a common emotion in everybody, he said. And when we have unresolved guilt, it can do great damage to us. 
There was a famed psychiatrist, his name was Carl Menninger, and he wrote a book, Whatever Became of Sin. He wasn't a Christian, he wasn't a believer, but during his lifetime, he noted how his profession had downplayed the effect of shame, of the shame improper actions had on people. His contention was that unless one dealt with a person's conscience and guilt, there were many internal conflicts counselors could not fix. He once said that if he could convince patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, that their guilt was taken away, 75% of them could walk out on their own. And this is a man who didn't even know the Lord. But he saw the power of, of conviction and condemnation and guilt. There was a study in the University of Toronto in 2006, and they found that people who suffered, suffered a guilty conscience experienced a powerful urge to wash themselves. Isn't that fascinating? The researchers asked test subjects to recall past sins and were told to wash their hands as a symbol of cleansing their conscience. And another group, the control group, was told simply to wash their hands. The researchers found that those who recalled their sins washed their hands twice the rate of study subjects who had not imagined past transgressions. It's like, out, out, damn spot. You're just thinking of these things and you're trying to just make it go away. And it doesn't. It keeps knocking at the door and it affects us. And that is the idea of Satan whispering, you killed the duck. And you just can't wash the blood off your hands. I'm about ready to jump into the study, but before I do, I, I wanted to share with you this insight. Um, there was a woman who had married a millionaire. He's very, very wealthy. And he died. And she remarried, interestingly enough, a magician. And he died. She married a third time, and this time she married a pastor. And of course, he too died. Finally, her last marriage, she married a mortician. One for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. <laughs> you thought I was serious, I wasn't. <laughs> We've all run for the money. We've all run for the show. But are you ready? Are you ready? It's appointed once for a man to die. How do you process your guilt? We'll stand before God. We'll give an accounting of our life. It's our sin that separates us from a holy God. It's not covered. It's not shrouded. He sees it. Our sins are laid bare before the eyes of God. And, and to cover our sin is only to compound it. To lie about our sin is only to compound it. We, we commit the sin, we lie about the sin, we lie about the lie to cover the sin. And our life becomes this menagerie of, of things that we have to remember as our memory and our physical strength declines. And it becomes a mess. And we wonder who we are and why we're here and what we're about. At 52 years of age, sitting with classmates... One who at this stage in his life, having served the military and faithfully in, in the field of war, is now finding himself unemployed. And as I had shared with Michelle, I said, at 52 years of age, a midlife crisis, this is where your strength starts to decline and the strength of your children begins to increase. Your significance in the family begins to wane and the mantle of authority begins to rest with the children and the house becomes quieter and quieter and who you are becomes diminished and less important. 
And in the midst of that midlife crisis for men who are conquerors and we're, we're, we're these folks that just want to make it happen, we're watching as our body is declining and we come to a place where the dreams and the aspirations we had as young men, as the scripture says, your young men will dream dreams and this idea of visions. And now as, as we get older, we look back and it's not what we intended it to be and we struggle through that process as men. And somehow we want to relive the past or we want to rewrite the future. And yet our bodies are failing us and and our strength is waning. And we're being challenged at every step of the way. And and, and this is where you come to a conflict. And what's fascinating about me describing that to my wife is that when David committed this sin with Bathsheba and is now in the process of Psalm 32, he was in his 50s, a midlife crisis. And he says in, in the psalm, in Psalm 32, he uses four terms, and there's, a, there's over 16 in the scriptures to describe sin. He uses four of the terms here to describe sin. He says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word transgression means to step over the line. God has made a line, he's made a standard, he's made a rule, thou shalt not. And David stepped over that. A willful disobedience of God's commandments. We've done that in our world today. We've, we've relegated him to the back of the bus. We don't, we don't elevate his law. We don't instill it in our children. We, we certainly don't have time to pour it into the next generation. And we willingly step over that line of transgression in our lives and that of our family, in our community, in our society. Then David uses in verse 1 the word sin, and sin just simply means missing the mark. As I've said often, it's an archer's term where the arrow lands and where the bullseye is. It's called the sin distance, how far we've fallen from perfection. And that's either willful or reactive. It doesn't matter, you've just missed the mark. And then David says in verse 2, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And the word iniquity means twisted, crooked, bent. It's the inner condition of man. We've been born with a sin nature. We're innately selfish. We're, we're innately self-consumed. And we're bent, and we're crooked, and we're twisted. And when left to our own vices, we can manipulate and, and, and postulate to our benefit in any way, shape, or form. And then David adds finally in verse 2, in whose spirit there is no deceit, or another term is guile. And all that means is a liar, one who covers his sin, and then obviously uh, compounds his sin or her sin. When you lie, you compound the sin, you add to it, you bring more people into the deception, more people to be hurt, more people to be deceived, more people to trust you when you aren't to be trusted, and that sin is compounded. But in the same regard, as you see the four words for sin in the first two verses, there's three words that David uses for pardon. Look at verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality turned into the drought of summer. Before I share the three words for pardon, remember this. This is what sin does to you. It, 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 it causes you to be overwhelmed and to be burdened. It causes your bones to ache. It causes your insides to crumble. It causes stress to be elevated. It's fascinating that... Uh, uh, the, the founder of the Mayo Clinic, uh, Charles Mayo, said, I've never met a man who worked himself to death, but I've met a man and many men who have worried themselves to death. Worry comes with guilt. Worry comes with shame. Worry comes with being discovered and found out for who you really are and what you've really done. And this is the problem. It, 
destroys you. This was from the Harvard Business Review. And it was a study done by researchers in the U.S. and Israel. The study involved 4,000 test subjects, confessed things they'd never felt guilty, or uh, confessed things they'd... uh, they felt guilty and ashamed. Researchers found that those who only confessed part of what they'd done wrong felt worse than those who had made a full confession of their sin. There's something relieving about getting it off your chest. That's why convicts like to sing in prison. And we carry it. And David understood the pain of keeping silent. His bones grew old through his groaning all the day long. You know, the scriptures say that the way of the transgressor, the way of the sinner is hard. It was David's son that would witness that of his father and write that in the Proverbs. He would say, good understanding gains favor, but the way of the sinner is hard. I've seen it in my father. Solomon would go on to write in Proverbs 28, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them, will have, God will have mercy on him. And that's the power of confessed sin. But if we don't confess it, it destroys us. It eats at us. Indigestion, heartburn, high blood pressure causes us not to be enjoyable by our family. But the secret is David says after that statement that I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality turned into the drought of summer. And he says, Selah, stop for a minute. Think on that. Aren't we tired of this? It's exhausting. And to have to keep all those lies, all those plates spinning. No one knowing who you really are. You're a mirage. Who you are is hidden. In a shroud of deception. And you want people to know who you are. You want to process these things. And it's killing you. Selah. We're all in the same boat. There's nothing you've done that God can't forgive you for. Did you hear me? There's nothing you've done that God can't forgive you for. No sin has separated you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you. Nothing. If you want to be honest with God, he's ready to be merciful with you. But it requires honesty. Selah, think on this. Because verse 5, this is a masculine. This is an instructive psalm on how to be happy. The secret to happiness is verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The word forgiven means to lift off a burden or to take it away. Come to me all you are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. When it says that he covered our sin, the word means that he shrouds it from the holy eyes of God. The Bible says we've been cleansed in the blood of Christ and he has he washed us of all iniquity and he's cast it as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. He's put it into the deepest oceans and Corey Tenboom said and he puts up a sign that says no fishing. 
When the psalmist says that the Lord has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more, I've said this often, if you leave the North Pole and you travel south, when you get to the South Pole, you're now traveling north. But if you leave and you travel east, you never meet west. He's lifted it. He's shrouded it in his blood. He's covered our iniquity by the blood that he shed on the cross. How does that work? Blood must be shed for the remission of sins. It is a capital offense. Somebody had to die for it. Jesus died in your place and mine. Propitiation. He put his righteousness on our account and covered the vastness of our iniquity, both past, present, and future. And we receive that by faith. And this idea of pardon means that he's covered it. He's shrouded it from holy eyes. And that he does not impute iniquity means he covers the debt. The price has been paid. And when you hear the whisper, remember the duck. And the accuser of their brethren dumps on you. And he tells you what you've done. The problem is, yes, God's forgiven you, but we can't forget what we've done. I find myself often lamenting and driving and just it comes back as a flood and I just think to myself, what an idiot. You know how hard it is to stand behind this wooden box and speak into your life? I take great comfort in the fact that God takes the weak things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. I'm here not because I'm the strongest of all of you, but because I'm the weakest. And I can only stand here because his righteousness is put on my account. I can only stand here because I know that being merciful, I receive mercy. I'm not here because I'm more righteous than any of you. The only good thing in me is Jesus. I know what I've done. I hate it. I struggle with it. And then like a dog returning to its vomit, so a man returns to his sin. I know what that's like. It's vile. And the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says, agree with your adversary on your way to the court of law. And our adversary, the accuser of the brethren, Satan. And so we're going to the court of law with our adversary. And he's reminding Rob McCoy of everything he's done. And I go down to Coronado and he's going through all the things I did in my childhood. He's reminding me all the things I've done today. All the stuff I did yesterday. And the stuff that I'm probably going to do tomorrow. And he's listing it all out. And I'm looking at him going, yes, 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 I killed the duck. And then we get to the court. And I have an attorney, a good one. The Bible says he's my advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. He happens to be the son of the judge. That's a good thing. And my accuser lists all the dates and the times and the iniquity. And my advocate says, Father, you'll see, list, excuse me, judge, you'll see listed all of those offenses and the dates and the times. But as you'll notice, they're no longer legible because they're covered in my blood because the price has been paid. And the father, the judge says, case dismissed, you may go. That's what the Lord has done for me. It's his kindness that has led me to repentance. I want to be different. That sin destroys me. The way the transgressor is hard. I don't want this anymore, God. I want to walk in the light as you are in the light. Confessing my sin one to another, the scripture says. You see, because when David said, I acknowledge my sin to you. This is the secret, people. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I haven't hidden. Hidden is in darkness. 1 John 1, 7 God says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We have guile, we have deceit, we're covering and we're compounding the sin. But as we acknowledge the sin and we walk in the light, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And then the scripture says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from, not some, but all unrighteousness. 
That's very comforting. But what does it mean to walk in the light? Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. To walk in the light is to confess. I, I, I know God forgives me, but I often hear the voice of the enemy saying, yes, God's forgiven you, but no one knows who you really are. And you live in the shroud and the smoke and the mirrors and you've got this facade of who you want people to think you are, but you live with who you really are. And God says, confess it. And the Bible says, confess your sins one to another. That's not unto salvation, but under restoration of, of a fellowship of people that are real and have substance. Find somebody you can confide in. My best friend's my wife. She knows every dirty detail about me. And I, and I tell her, let me show you what I'm like before I sin, why I'm drawn to sin, what I'm like when I'm engaging in sin, where I find the sin. So that it doesn't. So when the confusion comes and she's looking at me saying, something's wrong with my husband, she doesn't have to figure out the puzzle. She can look at me and say, are you having a problem? And my flesh is saying, don't tell her, don't tell her. My spirit is saying, yes, I am. Let's pray. She doesn't come with a voice of condemnation. She knows that the Holy Spirit is way better at bringing conviction than, I would, than she would ever be. But she, she just calls me to that account because I've given her access to that. I've brought it into the light as he is in the light. And the beautiful thing about fungus is it dies in the light. Bring it into the open. You hold your sin because you love. You agape your sin more than you love God. You would give your life selflessly to that sin and let it destroy you and everyone you love. And God says, that's not life, that's death. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, I have set before you today life and death, good and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But... If your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Choose this day whom you'll serve. Are you going to serve the deception or are you going to serve the light? Are you going to walk in deceit or are you going to walk in the light and in the truth? Are you going to confess your sins so that God can be faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness and to cleanse you of that? Are you going to carry this burden? Are you going to be a person of guile and a person of deception? Don't you want to have this lifted in forgiveness? Don't you want it to be shrouded from the holy eyes of God and covered in the blood of Christ? Don't you want that debt to be paid? God says choose life. You see, when you choose darkness, you're choosing death for you and all of the folks that are affiliated and associated with you. It's destroying your family. It's destroying your relationships. It's destroying our community. And you want to cover it up and you want to justify it. I get it. It's not adultery, it's an affair. I like to dress up for affairs. They're fun. That's going to be quoted on the radio. But an affair is an event we go to. Adultery is an abomination to God. Don't make it something that it isn't to justify your behavior. 
I'm angry because I'm Italian. No, you're angry because you're sinning. And the anger of God does not, or the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. I'm an alcoholic because I'm Irish. I'm Irish too. Be drunk not of wine, but of the Holy Spirit. This is what God has called us to. Choose life. Choose life. And the the three words of pardon that we've seen are are very fascinating and very important. And, And I would say this. Guilt eats at you. And it's time to be delivered from it. Guilt grinds you and crushes you. It's time to be delivered. Why does it do that? It's real simple. The Lord says... The Lord says that he chastens those he loves as a father disciplines his son. He loves you too much to leave you in that mess. He has greater things for you. And the secret to finding this happiness is I acknowledge my sin to you. Own it. David uses the word my over and over and over again. I am guilty. It's my sin. I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. And the Lord wants to set you free. He wants to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And that's the power of God in the lives of his people. I'll share this. I'm I'm limited in time, but I want to share with you. This whole sin occurred because David, as it says in 2 Samuel 11, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. When kings go out to war, David stayed back. The scripture said that it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Behold means he took her all in. And his mind went where he started to do the mental gymnastics. Temptation's not sin. That first look isn't sin. You can be tempted, but the Bible says when your temptation is united with your will, it conceives sin, and when sin is fully formed, it produces death. The will... United with the temptation produces action. Action then causes sin to grow and destroy your relationships. And David took his temptation and united it with his will and he beheld her and did the mental gymnastics. And this is the most powerful sexual organ we possess is our brain. And and he already committed the sin in his mind and, and, and was prepared to do it physically. And so he called for her. David sent and inquired of the woman. And someone said, is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David, stay away from her. She's the wife of one of your greatest soldiers. And, 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 and the granddaughter of an even greater soldier. David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. And she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And so she sent and told David that she's with child. And the Bible says your sins will find you out. And so did this one. 2 Samuel chapter 12, God loved David too much as a father loves his son and he chastened him. He wouldn't allow him to remain in the sin because as David said, I kept silent. My bones grew old through the groaning all day long. And what's amazing about somebody who's trapped in sin, they are so judgmental. They are so judgmental. Some of the most wicked sinners are the people who are so judgmental because they're hiding their sin because their sin looks so much worse on other people. And makes them feel better by condemning it in others' lives. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in the city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. 
It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger was greatly aroused at Nathan's story. And against the man, he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this shall surely die. He shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's in his 50s and he's angry and he's judging. And Nathan looks at him and he says, You're that man. Boy, those words sting. And I've heard them more times in my life than I want to recount. You're that man. David could have killed Nathan and covered it up and continued in his guile and his deception. But as he said in the the psalm, I acknowledge my sin to you. David said, I have sinned against the Lord, verse 13. I'm guilty. Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. And he goes on to describe what else would occur in his life. And then David would finish the psalm by saying, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you will be found and surely in a flood of great waters they shall come near him. You are my hiding place and you shall preserve me from trouble and you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go and I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, you upright in heart. And I have to tell you, it's God's kindness in my life that has led me to repentance. When we're honest with the Lord, he is always merciful with us. When we are not honest, the way is hard and awful. I close with the end of the story I began with. You remember the story about little Johnny? Well, there's a little more to the tale. After a while, Johnny began to wear down. He was half afraid his grandmother would learn the truth and his guilt made it so he could hardly even get any sleep. And so one day he confessed to his grandmother of killing the duck. His grandmother said, I know Johnny, his grandma said. I was standing at the window and saw the whole thing. Because I love you, I forgave you. I wondered how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. His guilt enslaved him, but his confession set him free. You're a slave to sin. And your deception. And the smoke and the mirrors. And you don't like who you are. And there's not enough drugs to make it go away. God wants you to have life and life more abundant. He says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And all you have to do is admit that you've done wrong. Own it. Own it. Place it all at his feet at the foot of the cross. He promises he'll remove it as far as the east is from the west, remember? He'll bury your sins. No fishing. Romans 6, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin.
how long are you going to let Sally keep you in prison? It's time to be set free. God has come to forgive you. I'll leave you with these last thoughts. God doesn't ask much of us in gaining his salvation. Only four things. One, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two, he asks that we repent and turn away from our sin. Walk away from it. Enough is enough. Three, he asks that we acknowledge that Jesus will now own us and he will be our Lord and Master. You're no longer a slave to sin, you're a slave to righteousness. The Lord is now authority in your life. And four, he asks that you allow yourself to be buried in the waters of Christian baptism. That's what we do. It's an outward expression of an inward commitment that you're associating yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that you go under the waters, and when you come up, Christ is living in you. He gives you the power to choose what is good and to operate in that realm. Your past is forgiven and your future awaits you. Come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. He wants to lift that yoke of guilt and shame because his body was broken, his blood was shed to cover, to shroud your sin and to impute his righteousness on your account. That is a great gift from a living God. This isn't an exercise in futility. This is the power of forgiveness. You can't wash it away. He already did. And it's waiting for you. You believe in your heart, you confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord and he's your savior. The transaction's complete and the table awaits you. And come, we're gonna take communion together, but let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that you have come to forgive us the multitude of our sins and that you died on a cross in our place to pay for our sins, past, present, and future. That those who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You are the one that cleanses us of all unrighteousness because your blood was shed for the remission of our sins and your blood washes us white as snow. We don't have to sit under the faucet endlessly ruminating over the things that we cannot resolve. You have come because we sinned against you and you have resolved and cleansed us. We receive your forgiveness. We extend it. We receive your mercy and we extend it. And so today, God, what a wonderful day this is because all glory goes to you. The cleansing of the conscience of man done by the blood of God. You are our Savior and we worship you and we praise you this day. Set your people free. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.